our reading this morning is Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4 and 5. It is the revelation of Christ. It's the revelation or the unveiling of our Lord in his present glory. It is an unveiling that chapter 1 of Revelation says was given to the Son to give to the church. So it's a wonderful dual gift. It's the Father's love for the church and for the Son. It's the Son's love for the church that brings us the things that we see here. After three chapters of uh, letters to the churches pointing out where they're doing well and where they're not doing well, in chapter 4, there is, there is a, quite a significant shift in the scene. We move from earth with all the ups and downs of believers and all the struggles against um, you know, the, the same old lies. Chapter 4, we turn to the, the unassailable throne of God and of His Son, the Lamb. So we'll read both those chapters. Chapter 4, Revelation. After these things, John writes, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or a scroll, literally, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we want to add our voices to the voices that we've just read about, whether crying out your praises because you created all things, and it is because of your will, your desire, your choice being exercised that everything exists and is sustained, and you are worthy of our worship. And we come to you this morning because, as we already mentioned in our prayer meeting, this is the first day of the week. It's the day you raised your son from the grave. The God-man, our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior. The one you sent and entrusted with every, everything that he needed to rescue us. All authority, all power, all wisdom, all compassion. And you raised him from the dead for our justification so that men and women and children in every part of this world, throughout every age that has ever been or will ever be, can come to you and meet you on a throne of mercy and not of wrath, can bow before you and take hold of all the promises that we have in Christ and the royal invitations that have gone out from Genesis to Revelation and to be made at peace with you through him. We worship you, our Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, God and man, seated at the right hand of the Father, rewarded with everything he promised you as a reward of your suffering and service. You are worthy of our praises because you were slain for us and you were raised for us and you now sit at the right hand of the Father and rule for your church. And we are astonished at these words. If they weren't in our Bibles, we would never believe them. We would think anyone that talked that way was a heretic. But you have stooped low. You have laid aside your glory. Become one of us a kinsman to represent us. So we worship you this morning now that you have returned to your throne and we pray that you would receive all the trust, all the love, all the loyalty that you deserve. God, we think of those in our fellowship who are still uh, sick or struggling with illnesses and it isolates them and we ask that you would meet them, that you would be that unalterable environment, that the awareness of you would be to them more real than anything or anyone else. We thank you for the good report that Greg Elder received to be cancer-free. We don't take that for granted, God, and we ask that your kindness would impact him and his family in a way that brings everlasting glory to you. We thank you for the way you have sustained Penny and Derek 
and others who are facing serious illnesses. God, we pray for Jane and John uh, with the recent trip to the emergency room, and we ask that you would give John's doctors clarity to understand why these things are happening, and that Jane, with all the weight that would be on her and uh, her heart heavy, would be comforted in a way that only you can comfort. God, we pray that as the gospel is preached today, whether it's down the street or across the world, that your name would be exalted, that humanity would see its need for a God, that men and women and young people would see what a mess we make of things when we pretend to be king, and you would conquer hearts Draw people to yourself, give them life, raise them from a grave, set their feet on a path with their king. And for those who have known you for so long, that the common accounts that they've heard thousands of times, perhaps, about the coming of Christ, the incarnation, that it would grip their hearts again. Simple phrases, boundless reality. Help us, God. Grip us. Work in us. For your glory, don't leave us how you find us right now, but continue that river of unexpected friendship. Work in us in such a way that we are molded into the image of your Son, and we are glad, like he was, to live unto you, to live with you and by you. We ask it in his name. Well, we return to the uh, theme that we've been looking at, at the question, who is this, or who is he, or perhaps more pointedly, who do you say Christ is? I know that's the kind of question that if you have been a believer for some time, you think, well, that's not a question for me. I've already answered that question, but it is a question that needs answering, in a sense, daily. Who do I understand Christ to be? Whether you are a, a pastor in the church or this is, you know, the first time you visited. Who is he to you? Who do you say he is? While it's not a complex question and the scripture is very clear about who Christ is, it is somehow particularly difficult for us as individuals to give a, a, an honest answer to that question. Who do you say Christ is? Or who is Christ to you? A.W. Tozer pointed that out when he talked about the fact that what a person believes or thinks when they hear the word God is the most important thing about them. He pointed out that it's very difficult to get to the, to the root of the matter or to get to the truth of what our soul thinks about God, what our soul thinks about the, the babe in the manger because we keep, as we go to answer that question, uh, you know, we keep getting interrupted by things that aren't as helpful. So for some of us, uh, an official statement, you know, kind of rushes ahead. And so, you know, who is Christ to you? You say, oh, I know who Christ is. And maybe you, you know, you give the catechism answer or a confession answer. Now, some of you haven't memorized those answers. And so, you give uh, another answer, one that's more cliche, you know. It's not that those answers are wrong, and those things can be helpful or harmful, depending on whether they're accurate, but it's not, that's not what I'm asking for this morning. My question for every person here this morning is, who is Christ to you? Beneath all the official answers, beneath the things that are right to say in a church building, who is he to you? Well, last week we tried to answer that question to get help from the word of God, which is the best place to start. To look at what God says, then to ask the question, are my views in harmony with God's views? I mean, the, the spirit has sketched Christ here. He's told us what the father thinks of him. So, do I think of Christ as I ought to think of Christ? 
Last week, we looked at what was said by those who heard the announcement of the coming of Jesus, particularly Elizabeth, who was going to give birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner, but also Mary and the Magnificat. Mary magnifies or exalts or lifts as high as she can the splendor of God when she hears that he has kept his promises and she is in fact pregnant with the God-man. And we're going to talk more about that next week, so we won't hit on that now. By the way, if young people, if you have prepared by looking at the questions in the email, you are actually a week ahead of time because I feel that we, I've wanted to save that for the next week. So I, late after I sent the email announcements, uh, we, we changed gears. So for young people and old, five questions today. What do the five pictures that we look at together this morning teach us about the king? What do they teach us about us? So today we want to look at portraits of Christ, not, not the Magnificat, not what Zacharias says, or not what Simeon or Anna says when they see the babe in the temple, but I want us to look at portraits painted of the king so we could use our imagination. Imagine you are in the royal palace, the royal palace, the palace of Christ, and you're walking down the hall and there are portraits all along the, this long hallway. And they start with, you know, the earliest portraits and they, they, and they show the king there he is when he's young, and there he is a little older and a little older. There's his coronation. There he is as a, as a mature man. There he is as he's older. It doesn't apply perfectly to Christ because we're going to talk about the fact that the very first picture we look at this morning is not Jesus in a manger, but something that preceded that, and he never grows old. But we're looking at portraits of the king, and we, we want to look at them in a consecutive order. And these are strange portraits for a king. They are unique like him because there is no king like him. And the response to this king is unlike any response that has ever been given to any monarch on earth or ever will be. But they are factual and they're not exaggerated to make, an, to make a point, you know, to have an effect. And they are familiar pictures. I doubt that we'll look at any picture of the king this morning that you haven't already looked at. So as we're looking, we want to slow down and say, what would I say to the question, who is this king to you, if this were the first time you had seen these pictures, if you had not heard of Christ before? And so you're looking at the portraits as we go, and at each portrait, portrait someone turns to you and says, so who is that to you? What do you say about him? Well, let's look at them. The first is a, a familiar psalm. It's a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. And it's found at the early part of the book of Psalms, Psalm 2. It's a strange psalm for a number of reasons. Now, we know it applies to Christ. How do we know it's talking about Jesus and the birth of Christ, and, uh, and the rule of Christ, and humanity's thoughts of Christ. Well, we know that because in the book of Acts, chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested after preaching in the temple and performing miracles. And the crowds are amazed, and the religious leaders are offended again. So they call them in, and they, you know, they kind of read him the riot act, and, and then they confer with each other, and they say, well, we can't persecute them. We can't throw them in prison or kill them because the crowds think they're great prophets from God. And so there would be a, an uprising. So we're going to let them go. And they let them go after giving them this uh, ruling. You are not to talk or teach or do anything in the name of this Jesus ever again. And the response is well known, isn't it? We must obey God, not men. So they're released, they go back to the other disciples, and they all get together, the believers are together, and they explain to them what happened in court, and what, what the rulers said, and, and they have a big prayer meeting, and they cry out to the Lord, and the things they cry out are taken from Psalm 2. Later, in the book of Acts, later again, in Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 5, 
And then many times in the book of Revelation, Psalm 2 is quoted again, saying this is Jesus. And this was told to us a thousand years before it happened. So we're looking at Psalm 2, and the scene is unique. One aspect of the uniqueness is that it's a picture of a king before he's born, and we don't have pictures of other kings before they're born. I mean, this is a picture before conception, so it's not even a sonogram. It's, it's the king in eternity past. Before he comes into human history, the Bible tells us what the response of humanity will be when he comes. And the scene is pretty dark. Now, the only way that we can have a picture of a king before he's born is that this is a king that did not begin at birth, even though every other king has begun at birth. We all have a beginning. Every king has a beginning, but not this king. In the book of John, John tells us in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 in his first chapter that in the beginning, that is before anything was made, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's quite a sentence. Everything's packed in there. In the beginning is the Word, is the Word, is the expression of God. And yet, this expression, it's not speech, it's a person. Because John says he was with God. And the word he uses for with is face to face as equals. The Greek has different ways of saying you're with someone. This one is very clear. The word has always been with God, equal with God. And the word is or was God. So we have a Bible that teaches there is one God. And yet a Bible that teaches... There are three persons who are God, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, not three separate individuals like we would think of persons sitting on the front row. And, you know, we have three people in the front row here. So we have Ron and Lena and Elizabeth and Ron might get up and run to the bathroom in the middle of the of the sermon. But there's there's still three people. He's just separated. But that's not the way God is. There is a mystery of three in one there, and the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, has always been. And He is the one who pre existed creation. He is the one the Father joined to our humanity in the womb of Mary. So we have a picture of a king before he's born. Another unique thing about the picture is that there is a unique. Um, one-mindedness. There is a unique union. There is a consensus on planet earth that I don't know has ever existed before or since. I mean, when have we ever heard that every nation on planet earth was completely agreed about something? Now, there are times where we have, uh, you know, wars where nations are allies, and we may find five or six nations agreed but then there are other nations on the other side of the war, and they're agreed. So still, you couldn't say that, that earth is united, but here, earth is united. Look at what we read from the pen of David in Psalm 2. Well, let me get there. <clears throat> David writes, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which that word just means Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart, let us cast their cords from us. Again, we're familiar with the scene, but that doesn't make it any less shocking. Humanity is viewed in this first picture of the king this morning as raging against God and all of the earth is agreed, we would make better kings than God. So we, if we vote, we might overturn God's law and we can live the way we think is best for us to live as individuals. We could all be our own little monarch. 
And the Bible says that God's response to that in this scene is that he laughs, scoffs, he mockingly laughs at the rebellion of humanity. Not that it's a light matter, but it's a futile hope because he then says something to us. And in the psalm, he says, through the mouth of the Messiah, that he has already chosen a king for us. So it's too late for us to vote and say, I think we would make better kings than God. I think my ideas for John Snyder's life, your ideas for your life, I think that those are better suited for how we wake up tomorrow morning and live than the word of God or the laws of God or the commands of God. Well, it's too late to do that because God has already established a king. He's already chosen. And being God, he's not interested in our vote, even if we're all united. So we have a picture here of a rebellion in humanity. And in the picture, we see ourselves. And it's the same way with every one of these pictures. We see the king. We see us. We are like that. Whether it's a whispered rebellion, until we surrender to this king, we are quietly or loudly deciding that we would make better rulers than God. And we would do better at choosing our path, our course of life than him. But it's a futile hope because God the Father has already chosen the king for humanity. And that's God the son. Perhaps we think this is a bit of a bleak picture of humanity. I mean, I'm not a perfect person, but I would never agree with humanity. I, I would never join this consensus. Let's all get rid of God's rule. I, I would never say that. But without the work of God in the heart, that is what we say. That brings us to the second picture. It's a bit more bleak. Now, not all the pictures are bleak, all right? But this one is really bleak. You've got to shoot a thousand years ahead in human history to the birth of Jesus and the town of Bethlehem, and actually about two years after that. And for that, we have to look at Matthew chapter 2. We mentioned this last week, but let me point to it again. I can't read Matthew chapter 2, and you might not be able to hear Matthew chapter 2 without thinking of a nativity scene, because nativity scenes always have the same thing, don't they? Unless you're a stickler for Bible. Now, my mom was a stickler for the Bible, and so she's like the Puritan of the family. She would take away some figures from the nativity scene, which, you know, kind of sounds sacrilegious, but she took them away because she put them like at a distance, because there's some people in a nativity scene that aren't supposed to be there. And it's these wise men. The wise men are not at the stable with shepherds. The wise men are traveling, seeing the star, and it takes them a long time to get to Bethlehem. They're from the east. So by the time they reach uh, the town of Bethlehem and they fall before Jesus, he is not an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes. He is about a two-year-old toddler. Well, Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi, or that's another word for, you know, like mystical scholars from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king, and we'll talk about him in a second, because there's a lot of Herods in the Bible. This is Herod the first, who gets called Herod the Great. Doesn't deserve it, but he liked it. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what was, has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for this child. 
And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And by the way, though there are three very costly gifts presented, that doesn't mean there were only three wise men or three Eastern scholars. It could have been a group that presented the three. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And the account goes on to say that Joseph and Mary were warned and they fled Bethlehem and Israel and moved to Egypt. So this is our second scene. And again, there's a lot of dark colors in the background. You have the wonderful picture of God bringing his son, of him alerting wise men in the east. They come and we see the truth about Jesus Christ represented not in Herod or the Jews' response, but in the response of people that this is not their Messiah, so to speak. This is, they're not Jews. They don't read their Bibles daily. John says when Jesus came to his own, to the Jews, they did not receive him. Here we see foreigners traveling to see the son. And when they see him, they appropriately, they see a two-year-old and they fall down on their faces and bow before him and worship him. Such a strange picture. But the picture gets really ugly when we see the response of the king. Who is this Herod? What makes him notorious? Well, Herod I is actually not a Jew. Herod is actually not a king. So everything about Herod, you know, you could just write imposter across Herod. And that's important because I want us to think about that in a minute. Herod I was actually an Edomite, not a Jew. He's from a neighboring country, which is usually in the Bible at war with Israel. But when Eastern powers came and conquered part of Israel while Rome was ruling over the region between the Old Testament and New Testament, during that period, Herod was part of a family that was influential he flees to Rome, away from the eastern country, which has taken part of his nation. He flees to Rome, and he says that if they would trust him with armies, he would go and push the invaders out. And so they give him an army, and he goes, and he pushes the invaders out with Roman armies. And the reward is that the Roman uh, Caesar calls him a king and places him as a puppet on a throne in Israel. Now, Herod is not only an imposter, but he is a paranoid imposter and cruel. So cruel that he kills his sons because he thinks, you know, one day when they get old enough, they're going to look at the throne and they're going to say, you know, dad's not that good of a dad and I could be king. So we just knock dad off and I get to be king. So he kills his son. Next son, I could be king. Kills him. He kills uncles and cousins. He kills so many people. Anybody that could be one day king after he dies, he decides to just get rid of the competition now. The Romans, who were not known for their, you know, tenderheartedness, had a saying about Herod I. And they said this, it was safer and better to be Herod's dog than to be Herod's son. When Herod was... Uh, growing old and close to death. He knew he was dying. He knew that when he died, the people that he was king over, the Jews who hated him, would, they would throw a party. You know, Herod's death would be on their calendar as a wonderful holiday. It's dead Herod day. That was such a great day. And he's so arrogant. He decides to make this a bitter day to every Jew so that on the day that he died on their calendar every year, they would remember what a sad day it was. Not because they loved Herod, but because of this. He called all the nobles, all the princes, all the leaders of the Jews to meet him in the city of Jericho. 
When they meet, he imprisons them. And he lies dying on his bed. And the order is this, when I die, kill them all. So the day I die, all leaders, from little leaders to big leaders, all the leaders of the Jews die the same day I die, and then everybody will be sad, and this will be a sad day. And they won't have a holiday based on this day. They won't rejoice over my death. Actually, he had a wife, Salome, who was not as cruel as her husband. He had 10 wives. This one wasn't very cruel. And when he died, she, as the queen, interrupts the command and tells the army to free the Jews and let them go back home. This is the Herod that the scholars from the east meet with him and say, we've come to find the one that's promised to be the king of Jews. And this is the Herod that after the Magi go and worship the son, they leave, they go home, they don't go back and report to Herod because they've been warned by God. Joseph and Mary leave the territory because they've been warned by God and Herod realizes he's been duped. Nobody's coming back and telling him where this king is so that he can kill him. So Herod decides the only safe thing to do is to send his armies, thinking that Joseph and Mary are still in Bethlehem, he sends his armies to murder every boy in the entire region and the city, two years old and younger. It's quite a terrible picture of the Messiah. So again, we see a picture of humanity. You say, well, I would never, I would never be okay with the murder of tens of thousands of two-year-old boys. Well, of course you wouldn't. But have you thought of the ways that we are little imposter kings? Like Herod, we're really not suited for the throne. We're not from the tribe of Judah. Herod wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't from the family of David. He wasn't even a Jew. An enemy put him on his throne. And it's the same way with us. We're not really the rightful rulers of our own life. We don't belong on that throne. We're not God. We're we're not part God. We're, an enemy has convinced us that we should sit on the throne and we're in complete agreement until we meet the real king and we sit on the throne and what stinking rulers we are. We make a mess of everything. Look at our marriages. Look at our kids, our churches, our nations. Apart from the wonderful rule of the true God, it's just a mess. And like imposters, we feel that we have the right to do that. And we deal with Christ as Herod de dealt with Christ. It's just we don't get our hands on the baby. So we get rid of Christ's claims in a different way. We just say, well, um, I'm not sure that's what that passage in the Bible means when it crosses what we want. I have been a pastor long enough, but sadly, I've been a Christian long enough to see it in me that passages that were so clear to people or to myself, well, this is what God says. 20 years later, when I want something that goes against that passage, suddenly I'm, I'm fuzzy. Is this really what the passage means? And then I go online and I find experts. Why the experts say that that's not the only interpretation. And apart from the love of God working in our hearts, constraining us, we would all bend and twist the Bible to suit us so that we could stay on the throne. It's an ugly picture of humanity, but what a beautiful picture we have of the king and of his work. God sends his son. God gives a star. Foreigners come. They bow before him. He is the king. And though the world, Psalm 2, is still raging against God, through Herod this time, God the Father protects the Son perfectly. No one will remove this king. Look at a third picture, much more encouraging. The king is entrusted with everything he needs for doing the work the Father sent him. Matthew chapter 11. We looked at this not long ago, and it's a, it's a passage that is so well-known for anyone who goes to church. Matthew chapter 11, it's not a completely bright picture. There's some dark spots. 
About the middle of the chapter, we see that Christ turns and he's talking to towns in Galilee, around the, city, around the uh, Sea of Galilee. And he's mentioning these towns by name. Woe to you, he says. Oh, it's, it's terrible. What you've done is terrible. And what you're facing, if you don't repent, is terrible. Well, what have they done? Well, they were the places that Christ did most of his work. They were the places where he did most of his teaching. They were the places he did most of his miracles. And at the end of spending so much time in these towns, the people in those towns are, for the most part, indifferent. Do you remember the town where he heals the, de the demoniac who's actually there's two of them and they're living in the graveyard and they're cutting themselves and crying out and the, the town tries to deal with this problem. It's ruining business. There's a trade route. There's a road that goes right by this cemetery. Nobody wants to go by that place. There's these two demon-possessed men running around. And they, so they tie them up with ropes. The men just break the ropes. So people just stay far away from the region. Christ comes and heals them, frees them. And he casts the demons into the swine. And the swine run off the cliff and die. And the village, which are basically pig farming village, they come out and they're like, where's all the pigs, you know, and they've gotten the report, Jesus cast demons into them. Now they're all dead. And they look and they see two men. And I don't know if it's more because they lost their money or because they are terrified by a man who can come to town and change people that are unchangeable. But the strange thing they request after seeing it is, could you just leave and go somewhere else? We don't want you. Town after town, he works in. Town after town, there's indifference. Of course, there's bright spots. People are being rescued. But so much is indifferent. It's at that point that he says in verse 27 of Matthew 11, and this is our portrait. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, nor does anyone know, uh, no, sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills or chooses to reveal him. So what a strange picture. Here's a king on earth, the king that was prophesied in Psalm 2, the king that was born in Matthew and hunted, but now he is in full swing in these three years of service. The towns are rejecting him. The people are indifferent and he turns and says to them, every possible thing that I need to save you has been handed to me by the Father. And then what follows is wonderful. Verse 28. Then there is a royal invitation given to those who have rejected him. He turns to them and says, I have everything I need from the Father to rescue. Come to me. If verse 27 didn't exist, how do you know that verse 28 is worth reading? Well, why go to Jesus, the person that everyone seems to be ignoring? Well, because the Father handed him everything. Why hope in him today? Because the Father handed him everything. All the knowledge needed to rescue us, as complex as our life is. All the power, all the authority, everything has been handed over to the God-man. To this person that we celebrate his birth on Christmas. This babe, this man, this Messiah has everything in his hands. And he turns... And this maybe is the most shocking thing we've looked at yet. He turns to the people who have rejected him, to the, to the race of Adam that has hunted him, to the raging nations, and he says to them, having been given everything, I'm calling you to me. Find rest and end of the war. It is an amazing picture of the character of our Savior, that the child who is the king that's been promised for 4,000 years, rejected by his own, rejected by the Galileans, turns with all authority and says, come to me, I will give you rest. Another picture. Here, Psalm 2 is perhaps in its clearest expressed and so is the beauty of the king. At the same time, darkest picture, 
most darkest background, most beautiful spotlight on our king. The cross. Psalm 2 said the nations came together and their leaders are in complete agreement. Let's get rid of God's rules and do what we want to do. And in the Gospels, we read that two nations that never agreed on anything before or since are in complete agreement. The Jews and the Romans, the Romans ruling over the Jews, the Jews hating the Romans religiously, hating the Romans politically, they've come together and they are agreed. Let's kill this Jesus. Now the Romans, Pilate, who hates Jews in particular, and he got in trouble for causing a trouble in the region of Judea. He kept poking the Jews with a stick and eventually he gets removed by the emperor who says, I didn't put you there to cause trouble. You know, Rome preferred that the people under their rule would be, you know, somewhat sedate. So Pilate just causes trouble. He crucifies Christ like the Jews want, but he knows what they think of him and he knows what he's heard about Jesus. He is the king. So he writes above the above Christ on the cross, King of the Jews, and they are furious. Do not write King of the Jews. What am I supposed to write? No, you write, he says he's king. He claims to be king. He's not really our king. And the Jews say a a, a jaw-dropping thing. We only have one king, Caesar. I doubt the Jews ever said that before or since. Oh, oh, we're, we're loyal to Caesar. You're not loyal to Caesar? Pilate, you've been in trouble before. You... You don't want Caesar to know that you're calling someone else a king. And so they're they're infuriated. Pilate hates them. They hate Pilate. But they're agreed to put Christ to death. And Christ is put to death. But in Acts chapter 4, where where there are quotes, again, from Psalm 2, we read that this was the plan of God all along. The one who sent his son to be king. The one who said to the raging world, it's too late for you to have a vote. I've already chosen the king for all of you. And you will not be able to, you know, impede his coronation, his rule. The God who delivered his son, the king from Herod. The God who entrusted the son with all so that he could save his people. On the cross, the father crushes the son as the representative of those people, everyone who will hope in Christ, their sins are transferred to him and the wrath of God that cannot be measured is poured out on a true human and Jesus of Nazareth is crushed. But being the God man, the grave cannot hold him and he is raised. It is by representation that any of us have peace with the king. So, you know, you, you watch the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special and, you, you know, Linus is actually Linus is a great preacher there. He just gives you the word of God and Linus is there and he gives the story. And you think, oh, that's sweet. But th- remember this picture, that child in Bethlehem will be crushed by the perfect good pleasure, the kind intentions of God, because he will represent his people. He obeyed a law that we did not obey. He paid the debt. What is the debt for every sin? The wages of sin is death. He dies. 4,000 years of promise are being fulfilled. Thousands of years of rituals, of animal sacrifices, blood everywhere. Every time you go to church, blood, 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 Generation after generation, grandfather went to a church of blood, dad went to a church of blood, I go to a church of blood, my kids go to a church that's bloody, my grandkids, it's all bloody because there is one great lesson. There is no removal of the offense between a sinner and a holy God, a righteous king, except by death, and the death was the king's. Once and for all, Paul says in Romans 3, God has demonstrated that he is a perfect judge who doesn't bend the rules ever. 
And when he said that Abraham or Ruth or Isaiah or Daniel or David or Adam and Eve are right with him and not guilty, it's not because he, he winked at their sin or he fudged, you know, he bent the rules. It's because when he looked at them, he laid their sins on Christ and Christ was treated as the guilty one and their shame is removed. This is the only way for any of us to worship the king who came, born in Bethlehem to Mary, and not be worshiping our destroyer. Last picture, the king on a throne. We say, well, that's a normal picture, a king on a throne. You know, when we think of a picture of a king or a queen, we see them dressed in all their royal regalia and then... And they're on a throne. Well, that makes sense. But this is still a shocking picture. We read it this morning when we started Revelation 4 and 5. God, the unapproachable, the God before whom the angels cover their face, this blinding glory expressed from his perfection, the uncreated creator of everything is described in a picturesque way as ruling in heaven on a throne And he has a book in his hand. Chapter 4 is wonderful, but it's not enough. We need a chapter 5. Chapter 4 is the glorious God. Chapter 5, there's a book in his hand. What is the book? It's all that God desires or has planned or decreed will yet occur, but it's not yet come time to do them. So the question is, will, will it happen? And the booming angelic voice goes out throughout all heaven. Who is worthy to come and take that book from those hands and to sit enthroned beside God the Father and to open, break those seals, open the book, and begin to rule over all creation in such a way that every single thing the Father has desired to occur actually does occur, the will of God. And nobody in heaven comes up. No angel responds and says, I think I could do it. It goes out to earth and no one on earth and no fallen angel, no demon, no holy angel, no preacher, no missionary, nobody. And John begins to weep because the the thought that the perfect plans of God are not going to be accomplished is unbearable to him. And someone turns and says to John, why are you crying? Stop crying. Look. And so he looks and He sees the God-man come, the Lamb of God who was killed for the sins of his people. And he comes and he takes the book from the Father without any sense of inferiority, without bowing and covering his face and shaking in fear. And he sits beside the Father enthroned and he breaks the seals and he is even now carrying out all the Father's good pleasure, ruling over everything. That's our last picture that we'll look at today. There are so many other pictures, but for the sake of time, we'll have to limit ourselves. And in this picture, there is a picture of believers, of humanity, but what a different picture. Believers surrounding the throne, crying out the praises of Christ. Angels, wave after wave, from those closest to the throne, like concentric circles, then those a little further, then those a little further. And wave after wave, the angels, and then all creation, every planet, every solar system, every galaxy, the billions of them, they all, all inanimate creation joins and cries out that the one that died for his people, the king who gave himself as a sacrifice, is worthy of endless praise. Pictures, shocking pictures of a king. No other king has pictures quite like that. What do we do? Well, Psalm 2, all the way back at the beginning, the picture of the king before he's born, the last verses in Psalm 2 tell us what to do. There's a warning that goes out, and it says this, pay homage to this king. The Hebrew is kiss this king. So it's ancient picture here. You come before a king in the ancient world, you bow, 
you show your loyalty to this king publicly. The king reaches out his hand and you kiss the king. So you let everybody know, I'm the king's man. Maybe I wasn't before, but I am now. The picture is that we would surrender to the king, come to him, acknowledge who he is, acknowledge who you are, come to him on his terms, hope in him. Because he is merciful still to receive people who have been fighting against him. Drop the weapons Drop the excuses. Drop the, 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 you know, the, the bargaining, the conditions. Okay, I'll come if, if you let me keep, and I'll give you this, you let me keep this. No, just throw it all down and run to the throne of Christ and take him at his word and find rest. The psalm says, do it now before he comes in wrath, because the next scene, when Christ comes, the way that Paul describes it to the Thessalonians, he comes to be admired by those who love him, and he comes to judge those who will not obey his gospel, who will not bow and accept the kind of gift that people like us, it's the only kind of gift we could have, a free, unconditional gift. So come now, the psalmist says, and surrender. But what about tomorrow morning? Do you remember a number of months ago? It's probably over a year ago. My, you know how bad I am with time and church. We looked at the incarnation a long time ago as we were looking at the life of Christ. And I mentioned an example of a man in Europe. I'll just give you the summary. Actual account. A man in Europe who loved art, and loved particularly the, the portraits that were painted of Mary and of the baby Jesus, which of course are, you know, the artist's best imagination. This man in Europe visits a, uh, an art museum, and every day, week after week for a month, he comes to the same art museum in that city, and he sits in the same chair and he looks at the same portrait. He, he doesn't look at everything in the, he just looks at one famous painting by the famous painter of Mary and the babe. And he just looks at it every day, new details every day he notices. And after a month, he goes back home. Now that picture that he looked at was a pale imitation of the reality. It was somebody's imagination and I'm not recommending that we go get to know Jesus by going and looking at somebody's picture of Jesus. That would be useless. But if God drew a picture, if God painted a portrait of his son, would you not think it worth repeatedly returning to it and not just getting the vague look like, oh, oh, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm familiar with that picture. But to stare at it until new details came out new truths that would impact your life. We're here, it's a Christmas Sunday. People show up Christmas. People around the world will show up at church that might not show up any other time except for Christmas and Easter. And they get a glance at the picture of the baby and they go, oh wait, I know that picture. Baby, swaddling clothes, in a manger, a bunch of animals, there's Mary and Joseph, angels, shepherds. Why not... In this coming year, take this book as, as a collection of portraits that God himself has drawn of his son and stare at them and study them and get to know him in a way you've never known him before so that what you're seeing by the work of God, you're becoming transformed into that king's likeness. Well, I hope you have a really nice Christmas weekend and are able to walk with the Lord through all the um, craziness, ups and downs of it. I want to pray and then we'll just sit for a moment quietly and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the things that have been recorded, things that 
that build our hope on something far more stable than our good intentions today. The objective, unalterable work that you have done through your son. We thank you for the portraits that shock us at times and bother us, but that ultimately provide an enduring hope. So God, we pray that our gratitude would not just be empty words or songs only sung in a church building, but we want, like the Magi, to bow before our King and to give him the most precious things we have, our love and our trust, our moments and days, our relationships. It is according to your word, O Lord, our King. We are yours and all that we have. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.